Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. Just a few quick things before we jump into this week's episode. One, in case you're curious, our numbers at work are slowly going up. We were doing about 75 to 8,000, 7,500 to 8,000 vaccinations, 7,500 to 8,000 vaccinations last week, and we're looking at about the same this week. The health department is pushing us to get 2,000 a day, which I think is possible and which we're going to do pretty soon, I think. So hopefully we'll get everyone in Georgia all taken care of in a few months here. I know that's really optimistic and probably not going to be that quick, but we're in this for the long haul and we will get there eventually. Fun side note to that, since starting this job back in July, I have not brushed or cut my hair even once. Everyone relax. I still wash it on the rag and it's all clean. It's just not cut or brushed. And if I didn't wear a hat at work as part of my uniform, that would definitely not be the case. I'm trying to get back to July so I can say I went a whole year. It's become an obsession and my wife doesn't get it, but that's just par for the course for our marriage. Number two, I hope you're enjoying National Poetry Month. No practical cats this year and also not really any theme. Two years ago was the fungi from Yugath cycle and last year was Old Possum's book of practical cats every other day. And next year will also be themed, but this year, not so much. Just some of my favorite poems with weird slash spooky vibes. Number three, I've been doing this show for more than three years now, coming up on four at the end of June, and I've been considering for a long time doing transcripts. A lot of the people I follow on Twitter, whom I greatly respect and admire as people and as content creators and fellow voice actors talk about it a fair bit. Accessibility is an important thing to have, and honestly, I never really thought about it in relation to my show because I'm just reading stories. I don't know if there's anyone who listens to my show who is deaf or hard of hearing, but if there is, or if there's someone who just wants to understand what I, in my sometimes overly fast way of talking, am saying, I'm going to start providing transcripts of the intro and outro and provide links or text of the story so anyone who wants or needs to can follow along. You'll always be able to find these transcripts in my Google Drive, the link for which is in the show notes, along with whatever else I think is important enough to put in there. I apologize to anyone who listens who may be deaf or hard of hearing that I have not provided them up to this point. I offer no excuses, and I humbly beg your forgiveness. The plan is every Tuesday to write out the script for the intros and outros, get everything recorded on Wednesday and edit, upload it to Patreon, and schedule it in the feed to be published. Thank you so much for listening, and now, on with the show. Chapter 5. Little's Dream Someone has been murdered and so you wish my advice, murmured Roger a little wearily. You wish the advice of a retired and eccentric recluse, well on in years, who has ceased to traffic with crime. I'm quoting from a profile which did not appear in the New Yorker. He was staring into the fire, and the bright radiance which streamed rumored from the grate so illumined the sharp outlines of his profile that Algernon was struck silent with awe. A positively satanic presence, he murmured to himself, the exact facsimile of a sorcerer from the Malleus Maleficarum. They would have burned him in the 15th century. Murder, resumed a little, has become a shabbily synthetic art, and even the most daring masterpieces of the contemporary school are composed of inferior ingredients clumsily combined. Men no longer live in fear of the unknown, and that utter and abysmal disintegration of soul which the wise still call psychic evil 
no longer motivates our major atrocities. Anger, jealousy, and a paltry desire for material gain are pitiful emotional substitutes for the perverse and lonely egoism which inspired the great crimes of the 12th, 13th, and 14th centuries. When men killed with the deliberate certainty that they were jeopardizing their immortal souls, and when the human body was regarded as a tabernacle for something more or less than human, the crime of murder assumed epic and unholy proportions. The mere discovery of a mutilated cadaver in an age when men still believed in something, at least in something, filled everyone with terror and with awe. Men, women, and children took refuge behind barricaded doors, and the more devout fell upon their knees, crossed themselves, lighted candles, and chanted exorcisms. But in this decadent age, when a human being is assassinated, society merely shrugs its shoulders and relinquishes the sequel to the police. What have the police to do with the sacrament of evil in our midst? The sense of virtually immitigable evil, of stark and reasoning fear which murder once left in its wake, and the intense aesthetic enjoyment which certain individuals derived from merely studying such crimes as works of perverse and diabolical art, have no parallels in contemporary experience. Hence it is that all modern murderers commit commonplace crimes, kill prosaically and almost indifferently without any suspicion that they are destroying more than lives of their unfortunate victims. And people go calmly about their business, and are apparently not displeased to rub shoulders with the unholy ones in theaters, restaurants, and subways. Algernon shifted excitedly in his chair. But the problem we bring to you is enmeshed in the supernatural more hideously than any atrocity of the ages of faith. It transcends normal experience. If you will listen while I... Little shook his head. I've written books, many books, describing dozens of instances of possession of return, of immolation, of divination, and of transformation. I have confirmed the reality of the concubitus daemonum, have proved incontestably the existence of vampires, succubi, and lamias, and I have slipped not too unwillingly into the warm and clinging arms of women five centuries dead. He shuddered. But what I have experienced in this very room is no more than a flickering shadow, swift passing and obscurely glimpsed of the horror that lurks godlessly in undimensioned space. In my dreams, I have heard the nauseous piping of its glutinous flutes, and I have seen terribly, for an instant, the nets and trawls with which it angles for men. If you are convinced that such a horror exists, Algernon began, but little would not let him finish, my books have left most of my readers totally unconvinced, for it would disturb them to believe that I am not mentally unbalanced, he went on quickly, erudite and brilliant, but as mad as Bruno when he was burned at the stake for refusing to keep his speculations about the nature of the physical universe to himself. He rose passionately to his feet. So I've definitely renounced the collection and correlation of facts, he said. Hereafter I shall embody my unique convictions in the eloquent and persuasive guise of a fable. I shall write a novel. The art of fiction as a purveyor of essential truth has innumerable advantages which detached and impersonal utterance must of necessity lack. The fictioneer can familiarize his readers gradually with new and startling doctrines and avoid shocking them into a precipitous retreat into the shell of 
old and conventional beliefs. He can prevent them from succumbing to prejudice before they have grasped one quarter of the truths he is intent upon promulgating. Then, too, the artist can be so much more persuasive and eloquent than the scientist, and it can never be sufficiently emphasized that eloquence is never so effective in convincing men that certain things which are obviously false are momentarily true, as it is in inducing them to discover that which is ultimately true beneath all the distortions of reality which can leave reason stranded in minds dominated by wishful thinking and a deep-seated fear of the unknown. Human wishes and desires are so eloquent in themselves that certainly some eloquence must be used in combating them, and that is why the mere scientist is so hopelessly at a loss when he seeks to convert others to what he himself believes to be the truth. He doesn't perceive that new truths must be presented to the human mind vividly, uniquely, as though one were initiating a mystery or instituting a sacrament, and that every failure to so present them decreases the likelihood that they will gain proponents, and that an entire civilization may pass away before any one arises with sufficient imagination and sufficient eloquence to take truths which have been enunciated once or twice coldly and forgotten because of the repugnance with which the common man regards fact barely recited, and to clothe them in garments of terror and splendor and awe, and so link them with far stars and the wind that moves above the waters, and the mystery and strangeness that will be in all things until the end of time. Little's eyes were shining. I have determined, he said, to thrust aside the veil as fearlessly as Blake must have done when he wrote of a new heaven and a new earth, to fashion a garment so mind-beguiling in its beauty that the ultimate revelation will remain cloaked until a spell has been cast which will permit of no drawing back, no craven surrender to fear. He stopped suddenly, as if sobriety and an awareness of his surroundings had returned with a blood rush to his entranced brain. I've raved, no doubt. Like Blake, like Poe, like Gerard de Nerval. I'm always dreaming dreams, seeing visions. And to worldly men, calm and objective toward everyday realities, skeptical of all else, such visions, such glimpses are wholly incomprehensible. And you, no doubt, are inwardly pitying me and wondering how offended I would be if you should get up abruptly and plead a pressing engagement elsewhere. But if you only knew. There are things from outside watching always, secretly watching our little capers, our grotesque pranks. Men have disappeared. You're aware of that, aren't you? Men have disappeared within sight of their homes, at high noon in the sunlight, Malignant and unknowable entities, fissures from outside, have let down invisible tentacles, nets, trawls, and men and women have been caught up in a kind of pulsing darkness. A shadow seems to pass over them, to envelop them for an instant, and then they're gone, and others have gone mad witnessing such things. When a man ascends a flight of stairs, it does not inevitably follow that he will arrive at the top. When a man crosses a street or a field or a public square, it is not foreordained that he will reach the other side. I have seen strange shadows in the sky. Other worlds impinging on ours? I know that there are other worlds, but perhaps they do not dimensionally impinge. 
perhaps from fourth, fifth, sixth dimensional worlds, things with forms invisible to us, with faces veiled to us, reach down and take instantaneously, mercilessly, feeding on us, perhaps, using our brains for fodder. A few have glimpsed the truth for a terrifying instant in dreams. But it takes infinite patience and self-discipline and years of study to establish waking contact, even for an instant, with the bodiless shapes that flicker appallingly in the void a thousand billion light-years beyond the remotest of the spiral nebulae. Yet I can do this. <laughs> and you, he laughed, come to me with a little mundane murder. For an instant there was silence in the room. Then Algernon stood up, his face brightened by the flames that were still crackling in the grate. You say, he exclaimed, a little mundane murder, but to me it is more hideous, more alien to sanity in the world we know than all your cosmic trawlers and intrusions from beyond. Little shook his head. No, he said, I cannot believe that you are not exaggerating. It is so easy for men of exceptional intelligence to succumb at times to the fears, dreads, forebodings of ordinary men. Imaginative in a worldly sense, but blinder and dumber than clods cosmically. I'm sure that I could unravel your puzzle with the most superficial layer of my waking mind. The little conscious mind that is so weak, so futile to grapple with anything more disturbing than what the body shall eat and drink and wear. If I had not seen, said Algernon, speaking very deliberately, a stone thing shift its bulk, doing what the inanimate has never done in all the ages man has looked rationally upon it, I would have seriously doubted your sanity. It would be dishonest for me to pretend otherwise. A stone, you say, moved? For the first time, Little's interest quickened and a startled look came into his eyes. Yes, in the shape in which something, nature primeval perhaps, in eons primeval, shaped it, moved in the night, unwatched by me. When Shanyar Fawn, he stopped, was silent, for from his chair, Little had sprung with a cry, his face bloodless, a cry of terror issuing from his thin lips. "'What is the matter?' gasped Dr. Imbert, and Algernon turned pale, not knowing what to make of so strange an occurrence. For Little seemed wholly undone, a mystic gone so completely mad that a violent outburst was only to be expected and might well be repeated if he were not placed under immediate restraint. But at last he sank again into the chair from which he had so shockingly risen, and a trace of color returned to his cheeks. "'Forgive me,' he murmured brokenly. "'Letting go like that was inexcusable. But when you mentioned Shanyar Fawn, I was, for an instant, mortally terrified.' He drew a deep breath. "'The dream was so vivid that my mind rejected instantly a symbolic or allegorical interpretation.' That name, especially, Shanyar Fawn. I was certain that something somewhere bore it, that the ghastliness that took Publius Lebo on the high hills was an actuality, but not, I had hoped, an actuality for us, 
Something long past, surely. A horror of the ancient world that would never return to... He broke off abruptly, seemingly lost in thought. Tell me about it, he entreated after a moment. With bloodless lips, Algernon related once again the history of Shanyar Fawn as it had been related to him by Ullman, enhancing a little its hideousness by half-guesses and surmises of his own. Little listened in tight-lipped silence, his face a mask, only the throbbing of the veins on his temples betraying the agitation which racked him. As Algernon concluded, the clock on the mantel, a tall negro-colored clock with wings on its shoulders and a great yellow ocean spider painted on its opalescent face, struck the hour. Eleven even strokes peeled from it, shattering the stillness that had settled for an instant on the room. Algernon shivered, apprehensive at the lateness of the hour, fearful that in his absence, Shanyar Fawn might move again. But now, Little was speaking, striving painfully to keep his voice from sinking to a whisper. "'I had the dream last Halloween,' he began. "'And for detail, color, and somber, brooding menace, it surpasses anything of the kind I have experienced in recent years.' It took form slowly, beginning as a nervous move from the atrium of my house into a scroll-lined library to escape the sound of a fountain, and continuing as an earnest and friendly argument with a stout, firm-lipped man of about thirty-five, with strong, pure Roman features and the rather cumbersome equipment of a legatus in active military service. Impressions of identity and locale were so nebulous and gradual in their unfoldment as to be difficult to trace to a source, but they seem in retrospect to have been present from the first. The place was not Rome, nor even Italy, but the small provincial municipium of Caligurus on the southern bank of the Iberus in Hispania Satirior. It was in the Republican age, because the province was still under a senatorial proconsul instead of a legatus of the imperator. I was a man of about my own waking age and build, I was clad in a civilian toga of yellowish color with the two thin reddish stripes of the equestrian order. My name was L. Calius Rufus, and my rank seemed to be that of a provincial quaestor. I was definitely an Italian-born Roman, the province of Caligurus being alien, colonial soil to me. My guest was Gnaeus Balbutius, legatus of the Twelfth Legion, which was permanently encamped just outside the town on the riverbank. The home in which I was receiving him was a suburban villa on a hillside south of the compact section, and it overlooked both town and river. The day before I had received a worried call from one Tiberius Aeneas Mila, aedile of the small town of Pompolo, three days' march to the north in the territory of the Viscones at the foot of the mysterious Pyrenees. He had been to request Balbutius to spare him a cohort for a very extraordinary service on the night of the Calends of November, and Balbutius had emphatically refused. Therefore, knowing me to be acquainted with P. Scribonius Libo, the proconsul at Terraco, he had come to ask me to lay his case by letter before that official. Milo was a dark, lean man of middle age, of presentable Roman features, but with the coarse hair of a Celtiberian. It seems that there dwelt hidden in the Pyrenees a strange race of small, dark people, unlike the Gauls and Celtiberians in speech and features, who indulged in terrible rites and practices twice every year, 
on the Calends of Mayus and November. They lit fires on the hilltops at dusk, beat continuously on strange drums, and horribly all through the night. Always before these orgies, people would be found missing from the village, and none of them were ever known to return. It was thought that they were stolen for sacrificial purposes, but no one dared to investigate, and eventually the semi-annual loss of villagers came to be regarded as a regular tribute, like the seven youths and maidens that Athens was forced to send each year to Crete for King Minos and the Minotaur. The tribal Vascones and even some of the semi-Romanized cottages of the foothills were suspected by the inhabitants of Pompolo and being in league with the strange dark folk. Miri Nigri was the name used in my dream. These dark folk were seen in Pompolo only once a year, in summer when a few of their number would come down from the hills to trade with the merchants. They seemed incapable of speech and transacted business by signs. During the preceding summer, the small folk had come to trade as usual, five of them, but had become involved in a general scuffle when one of them had attempted to torture a dog for pleasure in the forum. In this fighting, two of them had been killed, and the remaining three had returned to the hills with evil faces. Now it was autumn, and the customary quota of villagers had not disappeared. It was not normal for the Miri Nigri thus to spare Pompolo. Clearly they must have reserved the town for some terrible doom which they would call down on their unholy Sabbath night as they drummed and howled and danced outrageously on the mountain's crest. Fear walked through Pompolo, and the Edile Mila had come to Caligurus to ask for a cohort to invade the hills on the Sabbath night and break up the obscene rites before the ceremony might be brought to a head. But Balbutius had laughed at him and refused. He thought it poor policy for the Roman administration to meddle in local quarrels. So Mila had been a so Mila had been obliged to come to me. I enheartened him as best I could and promised help, and he returned to Pompolo at least partly reassured. Before writing the proconsul, I had thought it best to argue with Balbutius himself, so I had been to see him at the camp, found him out, and left word with a centurion that I would welcome a call from him. Now he was here and had reiterated his belief that we ought not to complicate our administration by arousing the resentment of the tribesmen, as we undoubtedly would if we attempted to suppress a right with which they were obviously in ill-concealed sympathy. I seem to have read considerable about the dark rites of certain unknown and wholly barbaric races, for I recall feeling a sense of monstrous impending doom and trying my best to induce Balbutius to put down the Sabbath. To his objections I replied that it had never been the custom of the Roman people to be swayed by the whims of the barbarians when the fortunes of Roman citizens were in danger, and that he ought not to forget the status of Pompolo as a legal colony, small as it was, that the goodwill of the tribal Vascones was little to be depended on at best, and that the trust and friendship of the Romanized townsfolk, in whom was more than a little of our own blood after three generations of colonization, was a matter of far greater importance to the smooth working of that provincial government on which the security of the Roman Imperium primarily rested. Furthermore, that I had reason to believe, from my studies, that the apprehensions of the Pompolonians were disturbingly well-founded, and that there was indeed brewing in the high hills a monstrous doom which it would ill become the traditions of Rome to countenance, that I would be surprised to encounter laxity in the representatives of those whose ancestors had not hesitated to put to death large numbers of Roman citizens for 
participation in the orgies of Bacchus and had ordered engraved on public tablets of bronze the Senatus Consultum de Bacchanalibus. But I could not influence Balbutius. He went away courteously, but unmoved. So I at once took a reed pen and wrote a letter to the proconsul Libo, sealing it and calling for a wiry young slave, a Greek called Antipater, to take it to Terraco. The following morning I went out on foot, down the hill to the town and through the narrow block-paved streets with high whitewashed dead walls and gaudily painted shops with awnings. The crowds were very vivid, legionnaires of all races, Roman colonists, tribal Celtiberi, Romanized natives, Romanized and Iberized Carthaginians, mongrels of all sorts. I spoke to only one person, a Roman named Ebutius, about whom I recalled nothing. I visited the camp, a great area with an earthen wall ten feet high and streets of wooden huts inside, and I called at the praetorium to tell Balbutius that I had written the proconsul. He was still pleasant, but unmoved. Later, I went home, read in the garden, bathed, dined, talked with the family, and went to bed, having, a little later, a nightmare within the dream, which centered about a dark, terrible desert with cyclopean ruins of stones and a malign presence over all. About noon the next day, I had been reading in the garden, the Greek returned with a letter and enclosure from Lebo. I broke the seal and read. In a word, the proconsul agreed with me, had known about the Miri Nigri himself, and enclosed an order for the advance of the cohort to Pompolo at once, by forced marches, in order to reach the doom-shadowed town on the day before the fatal Collins. He requested me to accompany it because of my knowledge of what the mysterious rites were whispered to be, and furthermore declared his design of going along himself, saying that he was even then on the point of setting out and would be in Pompolo before we could be. I lost not a second in going personally to the camp and handing the orders to Balbutius, and I must say he took his defeat gracefully. He decided to send Cohort 5 under Sextus Acilius, and presently summoned that Legatus, a slim, supercilious youth with frizzed hair and a fashionable fringe of beard growth on his underjaw. Acilius was openly hostile to the move, but dared not disregard orders. Balbutius said he would have the cohort at the bridge across the Iberus in an hour, and I rushed home to prepare for the rough day and night march. I put on a heavy penula and ordered a litter with six Illyrian bearers and reached the bridge ahead of the cohort. At last, though, I saw the silver eagles flashing along the street to my left, and Balbutius, who had decided at the last moment to go along himself, rode out ahead and accompanied my litter ahead of the troops as we crossed the bridge and struck out over the plains toward the mystic line of dimly glimpsed violet hills. There was no long sleep during all the march, but we had naps and brief halts and bites of lunch, cakes and cheese. Balbutius usually rode by my litter in conversation. It was infantry, but he and Asalius were mounted. But sometimes I read, M. Porcius Cato de Re Rustica, and a hideous manuscript in Greek, which made me shudder even to touch or look at, but of which I cannot remember a single word. The second morning we reached the whitewashed houses of Pompolo, and trembled at the fear that was on the place. There was a wooden amphitheater east of the village, and a large open plain on the west. All the immediate ground was flat, but 
The Pyrenees rose up green and menacing on the north, looking nearer than they were. Scribonius Lebo had reached there ahead of us with his secretary Q. Trebellius Pollio, and he and the Edile Mila greeted us in the forum. We all, Lebo, Pollio, Mila, Balbutius, Asilius, and I, went into the Curia, an excellent new building with a Corinthian portico, and discussed ways and means, and I saw that the proconsul was with me, heart and soul. But Balbutius and Asilius continued to argue, and at times the discussion grew very tense. Lebo was an utterly admirable old man, and he insisted on going into the hills with the rest of us and seeing the awful revelations of the night. Mila, ghastly with fright, promised horses to those of us who were not mounted. He had pluck, for he meant to go himself. It is impossible even to suggest the stark and ghastly terror which hung over this phase of the dream. Surely there never was such evil as that which brooded over the accursed town as the sinking sun threw long, menacing shadows amidst the reddening afternoon. The legionnaires fancied they heard the rustling of stealthy, unseen, and ominously deliberate presences in the black encircling woods. Occasionally a torch had to be lighted momentarily in order to keep the frightened three hundred together, but for the most part it was a dreadful scramble through the dark. A slit of northern sky was visible ahead between the terrible cliff-like slopes that encompassed us, and I marked the chair of Cassiopeia and the golden powder of the Via Lactea. Far, far ahead and above, and appearing to merge imperceptibly into the heavens, the lines of remoter peaks could be discerned, each capped by a sickly point of unholy flame. And still the distant, hellish drums pounded incessantly on. At length the route grew too steep for the horses, and the six of us who were mounted were forced to take to our feet. We left the horses tethered to a clump of scrub oaks and stationed ten men to guard them, though heaven knows it was no night nor place for petty thieves to be abroad. And then we scrambled on, jostling, stumbling, and sometimes climbing with our hands help up places little short of perpendicular. Suddenly a sound behind us made every man pause as if hit by an arrow. It was from the horses we had left, and it did not cease. They were not neighing, but screaming. They were screaming, mad with some terror beyond any this earth knows. No sound came up from the men we had left with them. Still they screamed on, and the soldiers around us stood trembling and whimpering and muttering fragments of a prayer to Rome's gods and the gods of the East and the gods of the barbarians. Then there came a sharp scuffle and yell from the front of the column which made Aselius call quaveringly for a torch. There was a prostrate figure weltering in a growing and glistening pool of blood, and we saw by the faint flare that it was the young guide Accius. He had killed himself because of the sound he had heard. He, who had been born and bred at the foot of those terrible hills and had heard dark whispers of their secrets, knew well why the horses had screamed. And because he knew he had snatched a sword from the scabbard of the nearest soldier, the centurion P. V. Bulanos, and had plunged it full length into his own breast. At this point, pandemonium broke loose because of something noticed by such of the men as were able to notice anything at all. The sky had been snuffed out. No longer did Cassiopeia and the Via Lactea glimmer betwixt the hills, 
but stark blackness loomed behind the continuously swelling fires on the distant peaks, and still the horses screamed, and the far-off drums pounded hideously and incessantly on. Cackling laughter broke out in the black woods of the vertical slopes that hemmed us in, and around the swollen fires of the distant peaks we saw prancing and leaping the awful and cyclopean silhouettes of things that were neither men nor beasts, but fiendish amalgams of both things with huge flaring ears and long waving trunks that howled and gibbered and pranced in the skyless night. And a cold wind coiled purposely down from the empty abyss, winding sinuously about us till we started in fresh panic and struggled like Laocoon and his sons in the serpent's grasp. There were terrible sights in the light of the few shaking torches. Legionnaires trampled one another to death and screamed more hoarsely than the horses far below. Of our immediate party, Trebellius Pollio had long vanished, and I saw Mila go down beneath the heavy caligae of a gigantic Aquitanian. Balbutius had gone mad and was grinning and simpering out an old Fescanine verse recalled from the Latin countryside of his boyhood. Aceleus tried to cut his own throat, but the sentient wind held him powerless so that he could do nothing but scream and scream and scream above the cackling laughter and the screaming horses and the distant drums and the howling colossal shapes that capered about the demon fires on the peaks. I myself was frozen to the helplessness of a statue and could not move or speak. Only old Publius Lebo, the proconsul, was strong enough to face it like a Roman. Publius Scribonius Lebo, who had gone through the Jugurthine and Mithridatic and social wars. Publius Lebo, three times praetor and three times consul of the Republic, in whose atrium stood the ancestral forms of a hundred heroes. He, and he alone, had the voice of a man and of a general and triumphator. I can see him now in the dimming light of those horrible torches among that fear-struck stampede of the doomed. I can hear him still, as he spoke his last words, gathering up his toga with the dignity of a Roman and a consul. Malitia vitus, malitia vitus est, venet, tandem venet. And then the wooded encircling slopes burst forth with louder cackles, and I saw that they were slowly moving. The hills, the terrible living hills, were closing upon their prey. The Miri Nigri had called their terrible gods out of the void. Able to shriek at last, I awoke in a sea of cold perspiration. Caligurus, as you probably know, is a real and well-known town of Roman Spain, famed as the birthplace of the rhetorician Quintalianus. Upon consulting a classical dictionary, I found Pompolo also to be real, and surviving today as the Pyrenean village of Pampelona. He ceased speaking, and for a moment the three men were silent. Then Algernon said, The Chinaman had a strange dream too. He spoke of the horror on the mountains, of great things that came clumping down from the hills at nightfall. Little nodded. Mongolians as a rule are extremely psychic, he said. I have known several whose clairvoyant gifts are superior to a yoga adept's often astounding feats of precognition. And you think that Siaho's dream was a prophecy, whispered Imbert. I do. Some monstrous unfettering is about to take place, 
that for which 2,000 years has lain somnolent will stir again, and the great things will descend from their frightful lair on the Spanish hills, drawn cityward through the will of Shanyar Fawn. We are in propinquity to the primal hidden horror that festers at the root of being, with the old hidden loathsomeness which Greeks and Romans veiled under the symbolic form of a man-beast, the feeder, the all. The Greeks knew, for the horror left its lair to ravage, striding eastward in the dawn across Europe, wading waist-deep in the dark Ionian seas, looming monstrous at nightfall over Delos and Samothrace and far-off Crete. A nimbus of star-foam engirdled its waist. Suns, constellations, gleamed in its eyes. But its breath brought madness, and its embrace death. The feeder, the all. The telephone bell at Little's elbow was jangling disconcertingly. Stretching forth a tremulous hand, he grasped the receiver firmly and laid it against his cheek. Hello, he whispered into the mouthpiece. What is it? Who is speaking? From the Manhattan Museum. The words smote ominously upon his ear. Is Mr. Algernon Harris there? I phoned Dr. Imbert's house, and they gave me this number. Yes, Harris is here. Little's voice was vibrant with apprehension. I'll call him. He turned the instrument over to Algernon and sank back exhaustedly in his chair. For a moment, the latter conversed in a low tone, then an expression of stunned incredulity appeared on his face. His hand shook as he put back the receiver and tottered toward the fireplace. For an instant, he stood, staring intensely into the coals, his fingers gripping the mantle's edge so tightly that his knuckles showed white. When he turned, there was a look of utter consternation in his eyes. Sean, your fawn has disappeared, he cried. Sean, your fawn has left the museum. No one saw him go, and the idiot who phoned thinks that a thief removed him, or possibly one of the attendants, but we know how unlikely that is. I'm afraid we do, Little said grimly. I am to blame. Algernon went on quickly. I should have insisted they patrol the alcove. I should have at least explained to them that someone might try to steal Shanyar Fawn, even if Almond's story had to be kept from them. He shook his head in helpless frustration. No, no, that would have done no good. A watchman would have been utterly impotent to cope with such a horror. Shanyar Fawn would have destroyed him hideously in an instant. And now it is loose in the streets. He walked to the window and stared across the glittering harbor at the darkly looming skyline of Lower Manhattan. It is loose over there, he cried, raising his arm and pointing. It is crouching in the shadows somewhere, alert and waiting, preparing to... He broke off abruptly, as if the vision his mind had conjured up was too ghastly to dwell upon. Little rose and laid a steadying hand on Algernon's arm. I haven't said I couldn't help, he said. Though Sean, your fawn is a very terrible menace. It isn't quite as omnipotent as Ullman thought. It and its brothers are incarnate manifestations of a very ancient, a very malignant hyperdimensional entity. Or call it a principle, if you wish. A principle so antagonistic to life as we know it that it becomes a spreading blight, as destructive as a nest of cancer cells would be if cancer could be transplanted by surgical means into healthy tissue 
and continue to grow and proliferate until every vestige of healthy tissue has been destroyed. But it is a cancer whose growth I can at least retard, and if I am successful, I can send it back to its point of origin beyond the galactic universe, can cut it asunder forever from our three-dimensional world. Had I known that the horror still lurked in the Pyrenees, I should have gone months ago to send it back. Yes, even the thought of it now fills me with a loathing unspeakable. I should have gone. I am not, he continued, a merely theoretical dreamer, though I am by temperament disposed towards speculations of a mystical nature. I have forged a very concrete and effective weapon to combat the cosmic malignancies. If you'll step into my laboratory... I'll show you something which should restore your confidence in the experimental capacity of the human mind when there is but one choice confronting it. To survive or go down forever into everlasting night and darkness. And that is the end of Chapter 5 of The Horror from the Hills. Thank you so much for coming back this week, as you always do. I really appreciate the support. I hope you're enjoying National Poetry Month. We've got plenty more poems coming, including at least one more from my wife. You're welcome. If you want to support me on Patreon, I would appreciate it. You can find me at patreon.com slash Podcast. No matter which level you subscribe at, you get the show a few days early, which is fun. Thank you so much to Matthias Hansen. Alder Riley, thank you. Mark Vincent, thank you, and I hope you're enjoying the Moonstone. Eric Braun, thank you so much. Chris Callie, thank you. That's going to wrap it up for the show this week. You can find the transcript for this show on my Google Drive. The link is in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Here's the bloops. Someone has been murdered, and so you wish my advice, murmured Roger Little wearily. You wish the advice of a retired and eccentric recluse well on in years who has ceased to traffic with crime. I am quoting from a profile which did not appear in The New Yorker. He was staring into the fire, and the bright radiance which streamed roomward from the grate so illumined the sharp outline of his profile that Algernon was struck silent with awe. A positively satanic presence, he murmured, he murmured to himself. The, exa- the exact facsimile of a sorcerer from the Malleus Maleficarum. They would have burned him in the 15th century. Murder, resumed Little, has become a shabbily synthetic art, and even the most daring masterpieces of the contemporary school are... You know what? I'm doing the thing. I'm doing the other voice. I'm doing the other voice. I'm doing the... the I'm doing Raven voice. <clears throat> then, too, the artist can be so much more persuasive and eloquent than the scientist, and it can never be sufficiently emphasized that eloquence is never so effective in convincing men that certain things which are obviously false are momentarily true, as it is in inducing them to discover that which is ultimately true beneath all the distortions of reality which can leave reason stranded in minds dominated by wishful thinking and a deep-seated fear of the unknown. One shot that sentence. Thank you very much. To fashion a garment so mind-beguiling in its beauty that the ultimate revelation will remain cloaked until a spell has been cast which will permit a I had that. It was right. And then I stopped. I don't know why I stopped, because it was right. And a cold wind coiled purposely 
<clears throat> yeah, I'm saying purposely because purposively, fuck you, Frank Belknap Long.